Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Diane Rehm is an award-winning radio host and best-selling author. She began her radio career in the 1970s at WAMU in Washington, D.C. She hosted The Diane Rehm Show from 1984 to 2016. For years, you heard that show weekday mornings on St. Louis Public Radio. I sat down with Diane earlier this week for an onstage conversation. The occasion was a dinner for the Manny Jackson Center for the Humanities Foundation at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. Manny Jackson was born in Missouri and grew up in Edwardsville. He played for the Harlem Globetrotters in the 1960s and, in 1993, purchased and saved the basketball team from near extinction. He also became a senior executive at Honeywell. My conversation with Diane covered a variety of topics. That included her start in broadcasting, hosting a national radio show, and her more recent advocacy for the Right to Die movement. Diane, I know I speak for many people in the room when I say how honored I feel to be here with you. And we've all listened to you for for so many years, and it's just, it's so great to see you here in person. And I did want to start with a question. I know you ended the Diane Rehm show just over four years ago. And that show was known as a bastion of, of civil discourse and of serious conversation, um, going in-depth on the issues. And I think it's fair to say the consensus is that our culture has only become angrier and noisier since then. And I'm wondering, do you ever find yourself wishing you were still in that chair to, to serve as a counterbalance to all that? No. <laughs> I was ready to leave and told my boss two years before 2016 that because I was approaching my 80th birthday, I felt it was time for a younger person to bring in a younger audience to bring in fresher ideas that 37 years for one person to hold a national audience was absolutely enough, and I was ready to relinquish that microphone. But I'm wondering if you had to bring it back for just one show, is there someone right now in the news or some topic? Donald Trump! Donald Trump. (laughs) Donald Trump, are you crazy or what? That's a great opening question, so you'd ask him that. I would ask him. I mean, to say without understanding what the Constitution says, for him to say, I am the legal authority in this land. Is he crazy or what? I'm sorry for those who I offend saying that, but I have to tell you, this man does not know the Constitution does not know the rule of the law, does not understand the way this government has worked for all of these years. So I feel very strongly about saying, does this man understand government? I'm sorry, forgive me. (laughs) 
So I know that when he was running for president, you said that that you hoped to book him at that time and your producers reached out and and he wouldn't do your show or he just never responded. Do you think he's afraid of the questions you'd ask? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> now, now at the time, um, he made those remarks about grabbing women, and I'll just leave it as grabbing women. When, <laughs> and when those remarks surfaced, you were quoted in the Huffington Post saying that that's despicable behavior that nobody, no man or woman, can condone. And I know um, working for an NPR Did affiliate. Did I really say that? They quoted you saying that. No. I hope it wasn't fake news. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Sure. But I know at NPR, um, they really desire for impartiality, to, to act without bias. Was it difficult to balance um, that value of the network with the desire to speak out when you saw things that, that clearly offended you? No. I am a woman who believes that women should be respected in every situation. And that, to me, was utterly and absolutely offensive. And I will say that then, and I say it now. Thank you. Now on the flip- And what he has said <laughs> about African Americans considering the contributions that people like Manny Jackson have made. I mean, I am so utterly honored to be here tonight to celebrate the Manny Jackson Award and to be here celebrating those of you who have come together to celebrating everything he has done. I mean, really, this world of ours is in such disarray, and I cannot tell you how upset I feel each and every day to see and experience what is happening in our world because, and I say it without any thought of anything but, this man is trying to destroy our democracy. And I truly believe that. So. <laughs> At the same time that NPR wants journalists to be impartial, there's a lot of young Not journalists. Me. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> there's a lot of young journalists coming up today, or journalists from the progressive media, who would say the media is partly responsible for Trump, that we shouldn't cover his tweets, that we shouldn't give him the bully pulpit, that the Diane Reem show would be wrong to give him that airtime. What do you say to that? I believe that the president of the United States, no matter what, his views must be heard by the American people. And therefore, I believe that NPR, as a major, and I would say the major network in our country, must carry 
the words of the President of the United States. At the same time, they must encourage opposing views of that President of the United States. And for this man to go unchallenged would be totally inappropriate. And he is not unchallenged on NPR. I think too many of us have become accustomed to listening or watching one extreme or another. I would say to you that NPR and your station here is the station that will provide you with the honest and multi-viewed perspectives of what it is the president has to say. It's interesting to think about you interviewing President Trump because you clearly have oh! yeah, you clearly have some strong feelings on this. And part of what I, I think are is interesting about how you conducted your interviews. You know, Terry Gross, who's the host of Fresh Air, another NPR program, she's sort of famous for she likes to do her interviews remotely. The person will not be in the same room with her. They'll just be sort of two voices talking. You liked to sit down with people. Um, and, and to be there in person with them. What about that um, was important to you as you were doing interviews? Well, for me, it's always been important to see the eyes, to see the body language, to watch the face, to see everything about that person that says to me who that person is. And I admire Terry Gross. She is one of my heroes. She and I simply have different points of view. She feels she can ask whatever question she wishes because she is not looking at that person. I feel exactly as though I can ask whatever I want by looking at and watching that person's movement. Martin O'Malley, the <laughs> then, may, uh, sorry, governor of, Mass, of Maryland walked in 25 minutes late to a live interview. And that's a nightmare for a host. A nightmare for a guest as well. <laughs> and I said to him, Governor O'Malley, you have lived in this area for how many years? And he told me, and I said, and you did not gauge the traffic between Baltimore and Washington? Well, he said, I guess we left a little late, and I said, for a live NPR national program, he looked very embarrassed. <laughs> and I know that many listeners felt, as I did, how insulting it was to them that he had not bothered 
to make sure he was there on time, and how many others felt I was insulting to the governor of Maryland. Fooey, you're on a live NPR national program. You show up on time. <laughs> what do you think makes a person a good interviewer? Research, 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 and then letting go of that research, making sure that your interview is based on what you feel in that moment, what you see in that moment, and how that conversation evolves. My producers, and there were eight at the time I ended the program, presented me with all kinds of questions and suggested topics to explore with anyone and everyone. But in the end, you go by instinct. You don't go by what's there on paper. You go by your feeling about that moment and that interview. You're listening to my onstage conversation with former public radio host Diane Rehm, recorded earlier this week at a dinner at SIUE for the Manny Jackson Center for the Humanities Foundation. Now back to the conversation. So I do want to ask about um, your career and specifically how you got started in radio. I was so surprised when I started reading up on you, doing the research as you spoke of. I'd listened to you for years, but I somehow never knew that not only did you never study broadcasting, but you didn't go to college at all. Um, how is it, what do you think was the secret to your ascent with those things which you would think would be two pretty big strikes against someone ending up a, a national radio host? I was a mother, a homemaker for 14 years. My husband supported us. And in those days, one salary could do it. We had two beautiful children. John was a government employee. He became the first general counsel to the special trade representative, who at the time was Governor Christian Herter. And that was under the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. I was at home. I did some modeling to make some money for the family, but the last time I did it, I was at a wonderful fashion show for women at a country club, and I had on a bathing suit, and I had on a cover-up, and I was instructed to walk and take off the cover-up and walk in high heels and bathing suit, and I thought, this is it. 
last time I'm doing this. <laughs> last time I'm doing this. So then I was doing volunteer work, and then a friend of mine told me she was volunteering for this tiny little radio station, WAMU in Washington, that was licensed to American University that went off the air when it went off the curb. And I thought, if you could have seen me, honestly, you would have seen a light bulb go on in my head. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I could do that. And I asked my friend, and she asked her boss at WAMU, and that's how I got started. And you were on the air then in, in relatively short succession. and First day. And from there, I understand this was the show that was sort of aimed at homemakers, but you were the one who really took the initiative. I understand it was about five years in, and you, you knew you could do more. And you pushed forward to say this show should be more. And that's what ended up leading to the Diane Reem show covering all that the Diane Reem show did. I'm wondering where did that courage come from to know that, that you should push for that as opposed to feeling held back by your insecurities, by just women sometimes don't want to put themselves forward? You know, I did push forward. But at the same time, experience such extraordinary insecurity so that when my boss left and I got the job, um, I sat outside before I went into the studio each morning ready to throw up. Hmm. I was so scared, and I thought, each day, I can't do this. They'll think I'm a fraud. They'll know I don't know. They'll know I shouldn't be on the air. And yet, I'd push through each and every day and you know, as women, I think we struggle with that. Mm -hmm. I know men struggle with it as well. I know they do. They just don't admit it the way <laughs> we women do. And I did admit it to myself and to my husband and to my children, and they all knew how I was struggling. And I finally managed to get through it and not quite reach a point that I believed in myself, but just kept doing it anyway and just kept pushing for tougher and tougher subjects higher and higher level spokespersons for the show, and by darn, we got it. When I left, 
we had more than three million listeners. That's Diane Rehm speaking with me earlier this week on the campus of Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. We'll be back in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. I'm Sarah Fenske. We're listening to my conversation with former public radio host Diane Rehm from earlier this week. We talked at a dinner for the Manny Jackson Center for the Humanities Foundation. Now, your, hu- your late husband, um, John Rehm, you wrote a book together with him, and you went very in-depth on your marriage. And one of the most charming parts in it is he wrote about how when he first met you, he was a lawyer at the State Department, and, and you were the beautiful secretary. And he wrote, in addition to noticing how beautiful you were, that he also noticed that you were reading these really serious books. He name-checked, you were reading The Brothers Karamazov, you were reading Of Human Bondage, and he began to realize you were just reading this for fun. Uh, what motivated that course of study? It wasn't for fun. <laughs> I had, as you said, never been to college, and I was determined to learn. I didn't know what I needed to learn, but I knew that literature was part of what I needed to learn. So you're absolutely right, and you really have done such a good job on your research. (laughs) (laughs) So I was reading those books, and John Ream, who was a Harvard graduate, who had won both the Latin and Greek prizes at his graduation, noticed what I was reading and wondered why this secretary to a man he respected was reading these books. And so, of course, we began to talk. We both loved baseball. And I played sports. I played baseball in high school. I played baseball for the State Department as the second base woman. John Ream was the pitcher for the men's team at the State Department. And before you know it, we got to talking about more than baseball. And he was such a beautiful athlete. When I first saw him, I thought he had been a football player. He had these broad shoulders. He had worked on his father's rock quarry in Pennsylvania, and that was how he developed those shoulders. But by the time He was near death. He had gone from 180 pounds to about 130 pounds of Parkinson's disease. It was a tough time. We were married for 54 years. And he finally said, 
in that nursing home, I am ready to die. And so he asked me to gather our daughter, a doctor, who is in Boston, our son, who is a professor of ancient philosophy and now vice president of the university, and our doctor, all within the nursing home he was in in Maryland, to say to them, I'm ready to die. And doctor, I want your help. And the doctor said very bluntly, though he was sympathetic to John Reams' plight, John could no longer feed himself. He could no longer stand on his own. He could no longer bathe himself. He could no longer do anything for himself. He said, I am ready to die. And our daughter, the doctor, said on the phone from Boston, but Dad, we can keep you comfortable. And John Ream said, damn it, I don't want comfort. I am ready to die. And the doctor said, ethically, morally, legally, I cannot help you. And John Ream was furious. But then, after we all left, I came in the next morning, and John looked beautiful. His face was flushed and pink, and he had a smile on his face. And I said, sweetheart, you look wonderful. And he said, I have taken the next step on the journey. He said, I have not had anything to drink. I have had no food. I have had no medication. I am ready to die. And the next 10 days, he ate nothing, he drank nothing, he took no medication, and that's how he died. And I was there with him. I spent that night, that last night, lying on two chairs, thinking I could go to sleep, holding his hand with our little dog on my stomach. I couldn't sleep, of course. Who can sleep in that situation? I got up and I started writing my book on my own. And the next morning when the caregiver came in, I said, I'm going to take the dog home to feed the dog. I'm going to take a shower and I'll be right back. I got back 20 minutes too late. And John was already gone when I got there. So that began the journey that I've been on for the last three years, writing about the right to die and the belief 
I have very strongly that each of us should prepare for and be entitled to the right to make that decision for ourselves. So for not only this book that I have written titled When My Time Comes, but for the documentary film that we have produced, which will come out on public television next spring, we have written and visualized what it is to decide to make that decision and to talk about that decision with our family, our friends, our doctors, to make sure that they know what it is we want when the time comes, not to wait until that last moment, as most of us do. I spoke at a church in Massachusetts, and I said, please raise your hand if you intend not to die. <laughs> and that's the same chuckle I got throughout the congregation. No one wants to talk about or prepare for dying. We all want to pretend it's not going to happen to us. Somehow, we're going to escape it, but not one of us gets out of here alive. So let's talk about what we want at the end of life. Do we say, I want God to be my only decider? And if that's what you want and believe, I support you 100%. If you believe that what you want is every possible medication that science can provide. I support you 100%. And if you say, I want the right to say, I want medical aid in dying, as nine states and the District of Columbia now have, I support you 100%. It's all about choice, and it's your choice, but it will not be your choice unless you have talked with your family, your mothers, your fathers, your children, your relatives, your doctors, your friends, about what it is you want. And that's what this book and this documentary are all about. 
So this book, you really urge people to have these conversations. And I feel like if there's anything that you have learned in the, the three decades that you were doing this show, it's how to ask questions that are hard to ask. So how would you encourage people to begin these conversations that are just so awkward? We, As you say, we all want to pretend death isn't coming for us. They are awkward, and it's not just one conversation. It's many conversations. If my parents were alive and my mother died at 49 when I was 19 years old, my father died 11 months later of a broken heart. So believe me, I know, because neither one of them talked about death or what was coming. So I, as a 19-year-old, was in a total place of non-understanding. Stupid, stupid. I would suggest that especially those of you, because I am long past it, who are of the baby boomer generation, who are dealing with parents who are nearing that point. And for those of you who are dealing with children who may not understand what you want, the conversation begins now. And the conversation may begin with something as simple as, you know, I've been thinking about what my own death is going to be like. Whether, in fact, I want everything that science can provide, whether I want every chemotherapy, whether I want every everything. Do I want all that? Will that provide me with more quality of life? I'm not sure. Do I want that? And maybe I say, I don't think I do want that. And I'm wondering what you want. Now, Diane, I want to ask you one last question before we, we take a few questions here from the audience. And that is, um, I know your husband, John Rehm, died in 2014, but you found love with a new John. You married again at age 81. And I'm wondering how that has changed your perspective in this decade that you're now in, to have this That's new love. It's changed my perspective one bit. <laughs> he is a wonderful man. He is a... Lutheran minister who has done family counseling for all of his career. However, the Lutherans and the Episcopalians, of which I am one, have come very close together. So when he is in Washington, where I live, he is in Florida, 
Where he lives, he says he owns JetBlue now. <laughs> but when he comes up, the National Cathedral invites him to participate in the daily walk-ins. He provides comfort to those who are seeking comfort. He provides Holy Communion. He provides counseling to those who are in need. So I never in my life expected, after 54 years of marriage to John Ream, that I would ever marry again. So this has been truly a blessing. And would you recommend a long-distance marriage? It worked. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> That's works. what counts. <laughs> it really works. He is so happy to see me and I him. And we have so much to talk about when he comes. I don't like Florida. <laughs> so I don't go down there as much as he comes up to Washington. So it works really, really well. That's my conversation from earlier this week with former public radio host Diane Rehm. Her nationally distributed show was heard weekday mornings here on St. Louis Public Radio for many years through 2016. We talked on stage at the Manny Jackson Center for the Humanities Foundation Dinner on the campus of SIUE. Our thanks to Diane, the foundation, and SIUE staff who helped us with the event. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org, or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hemphill and Lara Hamden, with production assistance from Aaron Dorr, Charlie McDonald, and Joshua Phelps. The senior producer is Emily Woodbury, and the executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Thank you.